So we are about to look at one of the, I think, one of the greatest sections of Scripture in the New Testament that really lay out for us God's saving work in John chapter 4. And just the nature and the heart of God and how he saves and a picture of his heart for people, for lost sinners. And it's just a beautiful picture and there's a lot of history and background work that we have to do, which is why I really wanted to have my notes for you guys to look at, but we'll just plow through there. But um, it's just such a great picture and there's a contrast here. So John 4, we all, most of us know John 4 is the dialogue between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. But in chapter, John chapter 3, previously, there was a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And the contrast can't be any more stark between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. Nicodemus was a respected religious leader of his day. And he needed salvation. He needed to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. And then you have a Samaritan woman who was a, an outcast. And as we read through her story, she had had five husbands, been divorced five times, was living with man, with man number six, was, had a bad reputation in her community. And according to the Jews, as a Samaritan, she was an outcast. She was a mixed breed. She was half Jew and half foreign. And so she, she is a picture of somebody who's on the outside. And for the Jews, somebody who they believed didn't deserve God and his love and his mercy and his grace. And so we have a great contrast here. And so I also believe that we also, as we go through this text, I think we also see kind of the, the nature of God's saving work. And what it looks like when somebody comes to saving faith and just this process and what we see God doing. And so we're going to do something a little different than what I typically do. Typically when I preach through a text, I'll... I'll cover a section and I'll bring out a point. And then I'll cover a section and I'll bring out a point. But what we're going to do is, because this conversation is 45, 42 verses long, we're going to go through the 42 verses. And then we're going to close with six thoughts that we've learned from this conversation. And so, but before we get into that, just to set the stage for it, you know, I believe that every one of us have a unique testimony, right? Of how God revealed himself to us, demonstrated to us the gospel. And so all of us, if we got up here, we could begin to articulate, you know, this is what God did. This is how he moved. And I was living my life. I was doing my own thing. I was pursuing this, pursuing that. And God arranged this circumstance for me to connect with this person. And then this person uh, invited me here. And then I ended up somewhere and and I heard this song or I heard this message or I connected with this person and then all of a sudden I get a revelation of the gospel and so we see that each of us however the Lord designed it had had a different path for us to come to say to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and it's a powerful thing to see and so we see a unique situation here a unique testimony with this woman and how God divinely Uh, set up an appointment. He had an appointment for her before the foundations of the world to meet her at a well in the middle of the day to have a conversation with her that she had no clue what was going on. And we're going to see it through the conversation. She has no clue what Jesus is talking about. And then all of a sudden, her eyes are open. She understands and and she sees and she ultimately becomes an evangelist to see the gospel spread into her entire village and people come to faith through her testimony, through this outcast, through this ridiculed woman. So it's a really powerful story. So let's 
let's go through it. Um, what we'll do is I'll read some verses and then we'll explain and I'll read another section. We'll explain and we'll go through it like that. So John 4, if you open in your Bible, John 4, starting in verse 1. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So let's look at some details here. So Jews and Samaritans did not have dealings with each other. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Jews despised the Samaritans. They, they, they um, did not view them as on their level. They were under them. That's how they viewed the, the Samaritan people. And one of the reasons was, was that after Solomon's reign, as we see through biblical history in the, in the Old Testament, after Solomon's reign, the nation of Israel was split into, into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom had gotten uh, overtaken by the nation of Assyria. And Assyria attacked the northern kingdom. And around ten of the tribes of the northern kingdom were impacted and taken over by Assyria. And King Omri, who was the leader of the Assyrian kingdom... He influenced the northern kingdom of the nation of Israel. And as a result, foreign people began to intermarry with the Jews of the, of the northern kingdom. And over time, over decades, there began to be a mixed breed, a mixed nation of Jews and non-Jews that were marrying and having children. But also as a result of that, as a result of that, the worship of foreign gods began to take place in the, in the northern kingdom. And so... There was a, a, a sense from the Jews from the south that those in, in the north, they were not true Jews. They were less than. And not only were they less than because they were mixed with foreign people that were non-Jews, they, they, they weren't worshiping correctly. And there began to be a false system of belief that took place among the Samaritans. And they only honored and, and believed that the first five books of the Old Testament was true. And they didn't take the whole Old Testament like Jews did, like the, like the rest of their people did. And so the Jews looked at the Samaritans as lower than them in a racial sense. And also, they looked at them as heretics. That they, they rejected the whole of God's word in the Old Testament. And they only believed the first five books of the Old Testament. So this is the core reason why the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. And so as, as a result... You know, I, I did have a map to put up here and show you. But to get from, from uh, Judea to Galilee, when Jesus was going to travel north, the quicker route was to go through Samaria. But Jews, when they would go to the north, they would go another route. The Jordan River, if we were looking at the screen, the Jordan River would be on this side. And you had the, the coast on this side. <coughs> and they would go out of their way to go around, cross the Jordan River, and go up north and then go back up. Instead of having to go the shorter route through Samaria, it was only a 20-mile journey for Jesus to go where he was headed. 
but had to go around and more than tripled his journey to get up there, if, like the other Jews. But Jesus, he said he had to go through Samaria. He had an appointment. But this is the reason why the Jews hated them. And so it, was, it would have been very uncommon for the Jews to go this route, but this is the route that Jesus went. So let, let's, let's continue on and look at some of, more of these details. And so it says here that when Jesus gets there, it says that he was wearied from his journey. You would imagine he'd be wearied after a 20, approximately 20-mile 20 journey. He's tired. I think that's really a great picture for us. That he, it says it in Scripture that, that Jesus was tired. Shows you that not only was he fully God, but he was fully man. He was tired. He had to sit down by the well. He was tired. And it says that it was the sixth hour of the day. And so if John, who wrote this book, was keeping Jewish time, that would have been around 12 p.m. noon, high noon. If John kept Roman time, it would have been around 6 p.m. But I, I believe it's probably more towards the, towards, the, towards, I'm leaning towards the idea that John would have kept Jewish time. So I'm thinking that this is 12 p.m., high noon. And so he is there at noon, the hot of the day, the heat of the day. He's tired. He's been traveling for 20 miles and he wants something to drink. So let's pick up, let's get back to the text here. So it says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And so, some little background here too. So we understand the hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. But not only was that happening there, but this was a woman. This was a woman. And Jewish men did not respect women. And Jewish men, especially rabbis, when they were in public, they wouldn't even look at women. You know, and I, I, read, I did some research on, on this and, and how Jewish leaders and rabbis, and in particular Pharisees, would relate to women. And so there was this book that I was reading that talked about the different ways to describe Pharisees during that time. And they had different ways to describe them. And one of the, the descriptions of the, of the Pharisees would be, they would be called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. The bruised and bleeding Pharisees. And the reason this is so is that when the Pharisees would walk through town and they would see a woman, they would close their eyes. And so they're walking around with their eyes closed to avoid looking at a, a woman and they would run into things. They run into a wall, or they trip and fall. And so the Pharisees, trying to stay true to the letter of the law, because they had this idea that, if they, that, that a woman would distract them from a keeping of the law. And so if they didn't want to be distracted from the keeping of the law. And it actually said that, that, that for a rabbi or a teacher or a Pharisee to speak with a woman, that it was at best a waste of time. And at worst, a distraction from studying the Torah. Which, if they were distracted from studying the Torah, it could lead them to eternal damnation. And so the Pharisees had a label of being bruised and bleeding. Because when they were in town, walking around, they would close their eyes if a woman came. Isn't that crazy? Right? And so th th this, is, this is the view that Jewish men had of women. So not only is this a Samaritan, but this is a woman. That Jesus is going and sitting with and having a conversation with. This is unbelievable that Jesus would be doing this. He is breaking through so many barriers to come and talk to this woman and to ask her for a drink. Another detail that's really interesting here. That phrase, when, when the woman says, when Jesus says, give me a drink. 
And then she says, how is it that you, a Jew, would ask from me, a woman of Samaria, and it says, for Jews have no dealings with us. That phrase, no dealings, when it's translated out, it, it's translated to mean that, that the Jews would not even use the same utensils that Samaritans would use. Not even use the same utensils. So what this woman is saying is, how are you a Jew who I know won't even use the same utensils that we use? How are you going to take a glass from me as a Samaritan woman as I dip it into the well of water? How are you going to do this? You have no dealings with us. You have no dealings with us even to the point that you won't even use the same fork and knife that we use. And so I just think that's such an interesting picture. Jesus is breaking through all of these barriers to have a conversation with a woman, with a woman, and she's a Samaritan woman, an outcast, a social outcast. No dealings with the Samaritans. So let's continue on in this conversation. So Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. See, she doesn't know what Jesus is doing here. Jesus right now is bringing into the picture a spiritual reality that she is not seeing yet. And we're going to see that it takes her a little while to get there. Jesus is changing the subject here. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And I think maybe this woman is thinking, wait a minute. Living water. Maybe Jesus has a spring of water somewhere, some living water, living, a, a spring that he can maybe possibly give me water from. And the, the, and the woman said to him, sir, you, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Where do you, where would you get that from? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And he gave us this well. He gave us, so he dug this well. And he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. The woman had no idea what living water was, what the living water was that Jesus was speaking of. She thinks that Jesus has got some other source, some other source of water somewhere that he's going to be able to give to her. But what is Jesus speaking of when he speaks of, of living water? Well, the Holy Spirit, but, but more, more specifically, what's he speaking of? What's living water? It's, it's, it's a picture of spiritual cleansing. It's a picture of salvation. You know, the nation of Israel, they had rejected God. They had positioned themselves in a place of rebellion against God in, in the prophet Jeremiah's day. And, and Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 2, 13. It says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. And it says such an amazing thing here. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That is such a powerful picture of people that try to find satisfaction apart from God. Try to find peace and joy and satisfaction, something that will satisfy their life. What do you do when you don't have a source of living water? You, you dig out cisterns that have no water and bring no satisfaction. And this is what God is saying to the nation of Israel. And this is what God is saying to this woman. You're, you're digging water out of this well, and there's no satisfaction there. And I, I am here to offer you living water. And if you knew who I was, and you knew what I could give you, you would ask me 
for living water. You would ask me for water. She doesn't get it. She doesn't see it. But this is what Jesus is trying to say to her. I am the source of peace, the source of joy in your life, the source of forgiveness, the source of life, true life. I am all that you need. And just like the nation of Israel in Jeremiah's, they had rejected the source of living waters. This woman was in that position too. And so it is with everyone that is far from God. They're trying to live life and find satisfaction in things that are broken, broken down cisterns. There's emptiness, emptiness. D.A. Carson, theologian, says this in his commentary on this story. He says, misunderstanding, speaking of the woman, misunderstanding combines with irony to make the woman twice wrong. The living water Jesus offers her Offers does not come from an ordinary well. And Jesus is, in fact, far greater than her patriarch Jacob. She's twice wrong. She's, she, she, she thinks, Jesus, where, where, where can you get this water? And are you greater than our father Jacob, our patriarch Jacob? And absolutely true. Jesus is the source of living water. And he is far greater than Jacob ever was. Because he's the son of the living God. And, and what's the theme of the book of John? What's, 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 what's the theme that we've gone over over and over again? I think Brother Chuck knows the theme. Tell me, Brother Chuck. It's the, it's the expression of who God is. It's, it's that we would, we would see Jesus and know him for who he is. And knowing who he is, believe in his name and we will have life. And over and over again, over and over again, that's, that's the point that John is trying to get us to in, in the stories and the accounts of Jesus' interaction with different people. It's that we would believe, that people would believe that Jesus is the son of, living, son of the living God and that by believing in his name we might have life. And this is what Jesus is getting at with this woman. He wants her to see that he is the source of living water. And you know what's interesting? We're talking about this. I, we, we talked about this in our staff meeting this morning with the other pastors and so I I texted them this morning. I said, read John chapter 4 and let's talk about it. And so I, there's 45 verses. Read about the, the woman at the well. And so we all got together and we talked about what the Lord was speaking to us in that section. And after we were done talking, it, it struck us that you don't see a confrontation of sin yet with this woman. We're about to get to it. Because you know the question, what does Jesus ask her? Go get your husband. Where's your husband at? And, and what's the truth about this woman? She's had five husbands. She's living in adultery right now. So, I mean, obviously Jesus knew she was a sinner. But what was Jesus' approach? I think it's just so, so informing to us when we think about the nature of God's saving work. His approach was to poke holes in her source of strength, to poke holes in the source that she was going to to find life and to show her to develop a hunger in her heart for what was good and true and right and satisfying. And in, in that's so what God does in our life. He gets us to a point of emptiness. And yes, there is no salvation that comes separate from an, an acknowledgement of sin. But Jesus, the Son of God, who is the source of true salvation, he is demonstrating to us a, a pattern of, of evangelism. And here he is dealing with a woman who is a notorious sinner who is going to draw water at the well at the, at the hottest part of the day. When, when, when do you think women would probably draw water at a well? 
during those days? Early morning, right? Because it's the, it's the cool part of the day. You want to go and you want to have your supply of water for the day. She was going at high noon, at the sixth hour of the day to draw water. That's where Jesus found her. It's because of who she was. Because she was not respected in, that, in, in her village. And what does Jesus do? He comes and he tries to show her that her life and what she is pursuing, what she is after, there's no satisfaction there. He's trying to point her to living water first before he ever points out her sin. That's something for us to think about. The woman still does not understand the spiritual realities yet, but let's go back to the text. Let's continue the conversation. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty. You know, so she's saying, where are you going to get this water? Are you better than Jacob? And then he says this, everyone who drinks of this water that you're getting water from, this well, Jacob's well, they're going to be thirsty again. They're going to have to come back. Man, that is so good. I mean, what is Jesus saying there? He's, he's telling all of us that the places that we try to get sustenance and strength apart from him, you're going to be thirsty again, and you're going to have to go back and try to get some more satisfaction again because you will be thirsty again. Only through me can you have true satisfaction and water that will satisfy. He said to her, everyone who drinks of this water You're going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him, and here's the difference, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And now Jesus, now Jesus, he he turns the corner here. Now he's talking about a living water that will never run dry, a living water that will be in her and a living water that will lead to, lead to eternal life. And now the spiritual realities are coming into focus here. And so now the woman says, wait a minute. Sir, give me this water. Why does she want the water? It's so telling. So that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She doesn't want to come back to draw, to draw water here. To face ridicule. She doesn't want to have to come over and over again because she knows who she is. She knows her condition. She knows what she's living in. She knows she's ridiculed. She knows she's an outcast. She doesn't want to have to draw water. Jesus is setting her up to desire living water, to to see that there is satisfaction apart from where she's been living. He's trying to get her to see this. He's drawing this out of her. The woman still doesn't get it. She doesn't understand the spiritual realities, but she does like the idea of not having to come in the heat of the day to draw water. Perhaps because of her sinful lifestyle, it was very appealing to not have to come to the public well and risk ridicule. Jesus is speaking of salvation. He's speaking of a spiritual cleansing from the living water that comes only from him. You know, but the reality is, Jesus got her to this point. But all lost sinners have to leave that point when they recognize where true life comes from. All lost sinners must come to understand two critical points. The reality of their sin and the true identity of Jesus Christ. And this is where the story changes. Everybody, before they're saved, they have to come to understand two things. The reality of their true condition apart from Christ. And they have to understand who Jesus is. That's so critical. And, you know, I think, I think that's, 
That's one of the greatest strategies of Satan, to get people to not see those two, those two things. And you think of the reasons why people don't come to saving faith. I talked about it on Sunday. It's because they don't believe that, they, that they're sinners. You know, right? And so what did, what did Jesus come when he was born unto us? How was he born unto us? A savior, to be a savior. And that's one of the things that people don't want to see. They don't want to believe that they need saving. They ask the question, saved from what? And here's the problem is that by nature, we compare ourselves to the wrong standard. Right? So we don't believe we need saving because we don't believe we're that bad. All men believe they're basically good. My kids think they're basically good. But my kids, my kids like we all know, like myself when I was a kid, you know, we, we all are naturally sinful. And it, it, it takes us, takes God getting us to a place where we can recognize that we are not right before God. And for us to quit comparing ourselves to the wrong standard. You know, we look at those that are really bad, don't have it all together, and we look at them and we think, man, I, I mean, hey, I, I'm not an adulterer, and I'm not, I don't struggle with that sin, I don't struggle with that sin or that other difficulty. I'm pretty good. But you know, what is the standard of comparison? Who is the true standard we should compare ourselves to? The perfect holiness of God. And so, according to that standard, the book of Romans says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, of his righteous standard. So that's the first thing that's difficult for people to see that, that are in our culture today. The second one is this. Is, 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 this is the enemy gets people to believe that Jesus is not who he said he was. He's just a good teacher, just somebody that presents a, a good way of life to follow. You know, you stack them up against all other religious leaders. You got Jesus, and you got Muhammad, and you got Buddha, and you've got New Age mysticism, and you've got all these different ways of life. And hey, whatever works for you. I remember Derek Dunn had a conversation with me back when he was still our youth pastor, and he had some people that were um, Jehovah Witnesses, I believe. And so they're having a conversation in their front yard, and Derek recalled the conversation, and and so. The Jehovah Witness wanted to know, what, 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 what do you get out of Christianity? And so Derek's talking and going through this thing, all these lists of things that God has done in his life. And, and so he looked at Derek and he made the statement. He said, you know what? It seems like it's, it's working for you. It's working for you. And you know, that's the standard, right? Hey, it, it, it works for you. Yeah, it, it makes you feel good. Gives you, helps you sleep at night. Is Christianity here so you can sleep well at night? Is that what it's about? We know that's not true, right? I mean, you know, if you're having trouble sleep, sleeping, I mean, there's medicine you can take for that. You don't need Jesus and give you some sleep medicine. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is not about having peace when you sleep at night. Christianity is about being saved from our sins. And this is the point that all people have to get to. And Jesus was exposing the emptiness of this woman's life, bringing it to her and getting her to be hungry and thirsty for living water, for something that truly satisfied. But before she could truly be satisfied, she had to understand those two things. And this is where he takes her. Let's go back to the story. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, okay, you want the living water? She said, sir, give me this water so that I will not have to come here and draw water. And he said, okay, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered to him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have been for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. 
what you have said is true. You have no husband. You know, Scripture, there's nothing in Scripture that shows us that salvation comes apart from repentance. Scripture knows nothing of a salvation without repentance. And repentance always involves a turning from sin. And this is what Jesus is getting this woman to to the point of. That she would recognize her sin, acknowledge her sin, and turn from her sin. Titus 2.14 says this. Jesus gave himself for us to do what? To redeem us from all lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So God gave himself for us so that we would turn from lawlessness. That we would turn from our sin and that we could be purified in him. And that he could be our righteousness. The Apostle Paul says in Acts 26, 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. But declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to all the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. Salvation is simply defined as repenting and turning to God. Repenting and turning to God. Performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And so this is what God Jesus, the son of God, is getting this woman to see. So he exposes her sin, something he he should not have known if he was just an ordinary man. He shouldn't have known that. Who's going to know this? Who's going to know that she's been married five times and is now living with the sixth man? And so the woman, as we continue the conversation, now the woman knows, okay, something is up here. This guy's been talking about water. I'm kind of freaked out that he's talking with me. He's a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. I'm a woman. He's asking me for water. Then he starts talking about living water. I'm thinking maybe he's got some source somewhere else. Some water I would, sounds really good. I would like to have living water. I would like to have eternal life. I would like to not have to come here to face ridicule. And then all of a sudden... It all starts to click for her, and he, she realizes this is not an ordinary man. This guy must be a prophet. And that's what she says in verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And now she starts to get religious on him. And she says, okay, you know some stuff here, so I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to get some answers from you because you obviously you know some things that nobody should know because you never met me before. And she asked him a question. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain but you say that in jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship so what's going what's going on there the samaritans believed that abraham because they only believed in the first five books of the old testament the samaritans believed that when abraham set his first altar to worship at the foot of mount gerizim that that was the place that they should worship at on on the mountain and she says well the jews you jews say that jerusalem is the place that you should worship So I perceive you're a prophet. You obviously know things you shouldn't know. So what's the truth? Where is it that people should worship? I I love Jesus' answer. This is so awesome. This is so good. So she's asked the question, is it on the mountain, like my forefathers said? Is it in Jerusalem, like your people say? Who's got the answer? In the next verse, he says, woman, believe me. Believe me. He switches it. And he says, he says, he, he, he places, he takes her emphasis away from her forefathers and says, this is what they said. And, and I know you're saying this is what my people say. 
And by saying, believe me, he's saying, I'm above all of them. I'm greater than your forefather Jacob. I'm greater than your other forefathers who said to worship on this mountain. I'm greater than everyone else of, of my people, of, of the Jews who say they should worship in Jerusalem. I'm telling you, believe me. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And listen to what he says to her, verse 22. You worship what you do not know. Speaking to the Samaritan woman, man, talk about, talk about strong from Jesus. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. What was Jesus meaning that, that salvation is from the Jews? He's literally meaning that salvation is from the Jews. That through the line of David, through the seed of David was going to come the Savior of the world. Salvation is from the Jews. And he was the salvation that had come from the Jews. You, you, don't, you worship somebody you don't know. But we worship who we know for salvation is from us, from the Jews. But the hour is coming. I love this. And it's, it's now here. And what he's saying is, is the hour is coming and it's now because I'm here. Because I'm here, people are going to worship differently now that I'm here. Because I am here to provide living water and a true way of salvation. And, and people are no longer going to say that worship is about being over here or about being over here. You know, what is true worship all about? It's about spirit and truth. It's about acknowledging what does it mean to worship in truth? It means believe me. Believe Jesus. That's the truth. It's not about the mountain. It's not about Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem. It's about believing what is right. It's not about believing what your forefathers said. If your forefathers didn't believe in Jesus, you know, some, so many people, so many people, they have forefathers who didn't follow Christ. And they, have, they follow a religious system. And they will just follow whatever their grandpa did or their grandmother did. Well, why do you worship? Why do you go to that church? Well, oh, my grandpappy did. That's where he worshiped. That's what he did. Why do you go? Why do you do that? Well, I, I don't know. That's just what they taught me. What does Christianity say? Don't believe your forefathers. Believe me. If your forefathers followed me, well then, hey, follow your forefathers. But Christianity is about believing Jesus. And true worship, true worship centers on the reality of Christ living on the inside of us. And so I want to say this about worship. I want to say this about worship. You know, worship is not music. Worship is not music. We get it so mixed up. Worship is a position of your heart. Because, you know, we can sing songs and not worship. We can sing songs and lift unholy hands to the Lord and not genuinely worship. You can sing songs and not lift your holy hands to the Lord. But because of the condition of your heart, you're genuinely worshiping. I remember one time, I need a Kleenex. I'm sorry, this is a distraction. Anybody give me, is there a Kleenex somewhere? I'm about to... I remember one time, I was in a service with my wife. Thank you. And she was pregnant like she's pregnant now. <laughs> how, far, how far along were you? 30 weeks. And who, who were you pregnant for? Eliana. <laughs> I forget which baby we were having there, but she was pregnant, and we were in the middle of worship service, and I remember... She leaned over to me and she said, she said, Ben, she said, I want to sit down. And we sat on the front row at this church, like we sit on the front row here. And she said, I want to sit down, but, but 
I, I feel like I can't because people are going to think I'm not worshiping God. And I looked over at her and I said, sweetheart, sit down. It's okay. You can sit. And I remember the Lord really tugged on my heart. And it was a, it was a revelation for me that I had believed a lie about worship. And we, we had believed things that weren't true about worship, about music and, and what God requires. You know, God, God, looks, God looks past the outward appearance. And true worship is true worship in music is not the lifting of hands. It's not the clapping of our hands, not dancing and, and all of those things that people like to say somebody's really worshiping when they do that. True worship is the position of your heart. You can be sitting still. You could be sitting down. You could be on your knees. You could be standing on your head and be genuinely worshiping the Lord because the, the heart of a true worshiper is a heart that is surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So that's one of the things, one of my emphasis I like to emphasize when we talk about music and worship. We should never look out and look at somebody and see what they're doing during a worship service and judge them and say, well, they're not really worshiping. Do you, do you see their heart? Man, there's so many times I'm in worship, I'm, I'm in a, a music time, singing of songs, and, and, and it's just all I can do. Just, I, I just don't want to move. I just this sense of reverence and awe. I'm just standing there. And, and me and the Lord are communing and I'm worshiping him. I'm honoring him. I'm adoring him. That's what true worship is. And this is what Jesus is trying to get this woman to see. That it's not about your position of where you're worshiping. It's not about how you're worshiping or what it looks like. It's, <coughs> it's about your heart. What is the condition of your heart? Have you received this living water into your life? Have you believed me? Jesus said, believe me. The hour is coming and now, and is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. Who is he who is called Christ. So now she's trying to say, you know, hey, when he comes, he'll tell us what we need to know. And he's like, I, you know, I don't know about you. You're kind of, you know, you, you know things you shouldn't know. I don't know how you know them. I've asked you these questions about where I should worship. I'm not sure about all of this. But I know the Messiah is coming one day. And when he comes, he's going to tell me all things. Tell us all things. And then Jesus gets her to the place where we all have to get to. And all of us here tonight that love the Lord, this is where we got to. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm, I'm the one. I'm Messiah. Jesus points her to the reality of true worship. True worship is centered on Christ. True worship is not about a location, but it's rather about your heart. And true worship is about the object of our worship. And who is the object of our worship? It's Jesus. And he points her also to the reality that own, their salvation is in only one name. That's what it says in Acts 4, 11 through 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, by the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And this is, what, this is the place he wanted to get to. 
And the next verse says in verse 27, back to the story, just then, at that moment when Jesus declared himself to be the Messiah. Think about this. We talked about this in staff meeting too. Jesus, over and over again, you read through the Gospels, what did he do whenever he would do miracles with people and they would recognize who he was? Don't tell anybody. Don't go tell anybody. Who does he tell? He tells the Samaritan. He reveals his deity. His, who he really is as Messiah, he tells her. And right at that moment, his disciples show up. Now, these would have been disciples who were very prejudiced against this woman as being a woman and as being a Samaritan. Just then, his disciples came back, and they, it says here, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. They marveled, like, what? Jesus, we've been following you for a little while. We're seeing some crazy things going on. You're doing some miracles. We think you're a good teacher. You're a good rabbi. But, man, this is rocking our world. We walk up. You're declaring that you are the Messiah to a woman, a Samaritan woman. This doesn't make sense to us. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But, but no one said, what do you seek? Or, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town. And said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Jesus, in this picture right here, is giving his disciples a visual lesson that salvation is not just for the Jews. And what do we say on Sunday? The gospel is for who? It's for everybody. For the Samaritans. For, the un, for all the uh, for ungodly people, for bad people, the, the, the gospel is for everyone. Jesus is giving them a visual lesson, a lesson that they will have to learn later on in the, in the book of Acts. What, what, what has to happen to the early church? God has to give Peter a vision to, 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 to tell them that salvation is of, not just of the Jews, but for Gentiles as well. The Samaritan woman says, come see a man. The Samaritan woman was so impacted by Jesus that she sets aside any fear of ridicule and speaks to the people she would have normally feared. Let's pick the story back up, verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to him, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has, has anyone brought him something to eat? Did anybody, anybody stop by and, and get food? They went through a drive through at Burger King and got him a Whopper. Did anybody do this? What does he mean he's already eaten? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you, do you not say yeah, there are four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, the harvest is right now. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And this is, this is the lesson he's trying to give these Jewish men. That this is what, this, this is what the gospel is all about. The harvest is now. The harvest is white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. You know, I read that verse this morning. I was going over my final points. And I'm, 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 I'm concluding here. I read that point. It says there, others have labored. And you have entered into their labor. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. I I thought about how true that is. How we stand on the shoulders of those that have come before us. You know, I couldn't help but think about about where I I am right now. And the the position that God has put me in my life. And and what I'm about to step in 
as the senior pastor at Living Word Church. And I thought about how Pastor Nay has labored. He's labored. And how I don't deserve to stand on his shoulders and to reap anything. But you know what? That's the gospel. That's what happens. People labor and they work. We serve the Lord and then we die. (laughs) And then we move on and somebody stands on our shoulders on the work that we've done. And somebody else reaps a harvest. And that's the way it should be. Makes me think, man, what a beautiful privilege we have as a church. This is what we're going to be talking about starting uh, on on December 31st and going into January. We're going to be talking about this great work that God has done and that he is doing. And that he is calling us as a church to stand on the shoulders of those who come before us and to reap the harvest, to look up, lift up our eyes for the fields are white unto harvest. And we can, we can try to look back at the past and what things have been and how they have been and, and, and for fear of what changes might come. But you know what we need to do? We need to look up. Not look at a man. Not look at anything else, but look at what God has called us to do and stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us and reap the harvest. And this Samaritan woman, she began to do that. She began to testify And her testimony about who Jesus is and the transforming power in her life was a tool that the Holy Spirit used to draw an entire village. Let's go back to the last verses here. She goes and she witnesses into the village. And she says this, He told me all that I ever did. The end of verse 39. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That's so powerful. That is so powerful. And that's the point of the Gospel of John. This is indeed the Savior of the world. So I have six things real quickly. Six points. (laughs) We're going to go through them quick. That we learn from this story. First one is this. Never underestimate what God's doing. Think about that. Never underestimate. Jesus just happened to go through Samaria. He could have taken the other route, right? But he didn't take that route. Never underestimate the circumstances of your life. We are limited to here and now, and we can't see how God is providentially and sovereignly working in our lives. Never underestimate the work of God and what he is doing and how he is moving. God is at work even when we don't see it. His disciples had no idea. Jesus, why are you going through Samaria? But through Samaria. I bet you they asked him, what are you doing, Lord? We don't go that route. We go over here. But he had, a, he had a reason. So never underestimate what God is doing. Secondly, we need to open our eyes to see people correctly. Jesus didn't see this woman for her sin. He didn't look at her and despise her because of her heritage, because of her adultery. He saw her for who she could be. And the potential that was in her life. And I think so many times when we look at notorious sinners, we look at people that are living lifestyles that we disagree with, we, we have a hard time looking past the exterior. We have a hard time seeing what, 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 what we believe is something that they should not be doing. 
And it's true, they shouldn't be living those sinful lifestyles, but we have to look like Jesus looks. And he sees beyond that. And he sees them with eyes of love and who they can be and the work that can take place in their life if they would just acknowledge their true condition. So we have to learn to love people that are unlovable. We have to learn to be patient with those who are not kind. We have to learn to be forgiving of those who don't deserve forgiveness. We have to learn to be kind and loving to those who are not like us, who don't look like us, don't talk like us, don't live like us. Because if we're not, we may miss the opportunity, one of the only opportunities they may have to hear the gospel. Thirdly, we, we need to we see through this story that earthly things can only temporarily satisfy. And I think we all know that, right? Earthly things. And this woman figured that out. She needed the living water. Earthly things can only temporarily satisfy. Fourthly, we saw man's real need. Man's real need is forgiveness. Man's real need is not temporary satisfaction in this life. Man's real need is not just to be happy in this life. Man's real need is to be forgiven of their sins so that they can stand justified before a holy God. That is man's ultimate true need. And fifthly, we, we saw in this story that we must believe Jesus. Jesus looked at the Samaritan woman and he said, I don't care what your forefathers said. I don't care what you think my forefathers say in Jerusalem. I'm telling you, living water is going to come if you believe me. And lastly, what, what did we learn from this story? We learned that gospel witness should be our natural response. I mean, think about that. Think about she left her water jar. She left it at the well. She immediately realized that this man was somebody that was not normal, was not just human. He was supernatural. He was the son of God. She left what she knew and she went and she began to declare the goodness of God through Jesus Christ. And God used her. An entire village heard the gospel message through an adulterer. And the natural response to saving grace is evangelism. Natural response to saving grace is evangelism. Amen? Amen. What a beautiful story, right? I loved it. Such a beautiful story. Picture of God's saving grace. Amen. Lord, we just thank you for tonight. God, we thank you for your word and how it encourages us and it teaches us what's true. God, your word is true. We thank you that you have transformed our lives. And Lord, I pray. God, I pray that we would be like the Samaritan woman. Pray that we would not be like the religiously proud people. Pray that we would, we would not see people incorrectly, but we would see people the way that you see them. That, you would see, that we would see people as broken and lost and in needing of living water. We'd see them as trying to find satisfaction in all the wrong places. And that we would love them into salvation that we would help them to the place where they could see and acknowledge their sin and that they would come to saving faith. God, use us. We want to be used as your people. We want to be evangelists for you. I thank you for all these things. Keep us safe as we travel home. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.